Wow. It, it is a distinct privilege to be able to work with, with these guys week in and, and week out. Maybe if you came in late, uh, my name is Pastor Keith, and uh, I'm normally standing there where David is standing. So it's a, it's a great privilege to get to, to bring you the Word of God today. But I did want to stop and just thank the Lord for the team that He's blessed us with. And it's more than just we're on the stage today. But I can tell you from working with these guys week in and week out that uh, their heart is in alignment with the task that they've been given. And uh, it's not just talented people that are on the stage. It's people who have a heart for the church and they have a heart for the gospel and they have a heart for their Lord. And it's an honor for me to be able to work with these guys week in and week out. Well, if you would do me a favor, go ahead and grab your sermon guide there. That will help you follow along. You can keep me on track if I get off, which is entirely possible because I don't really do this a whole lot, but I'm hoping that we can walk through a psalm together. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we want to give you one. If you do have a copy, go ahead and get it out, turn it on, and you can go to Psalm 145. If you need a Bible today, if you just raise your hand, and I'll have one of our ushers find you and give you a Bible today. Anybody need a Bible, just stick your hand up in the air and uh, we'll have Kamal bring a Bible to you. Just keep your hand high up in the air and be patient. It's a big room. He'll find you. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 145. We'll read the text and then we're going to pray together and then we'll dive in and see what God has to say to us today. So let's look at Psalm 145. Follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever 
and ever. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, we do praise your name today, and we thank you for this psalm. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher today, and that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us today. And that as a result, we would see Jesus, for that is our prayer in his name. Amen. Well, it's my desire today just to kind of walk us through some of my meditations this week on Psalm 145. Uh, greatness is a word that jumps out at you as you read Psalm 145. It's, it's one of those words that we overuse. I mean, let's just be honest with it. With it. Greatness, um, we think about, yeah, how was your weekend? It was great. How was the movie? Oh, it was great. Um, historically, there have been some, some people who have actually taken the name great as part of their name. Uh, Alexander the Great, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. Uh, how many people remember Jackie Gleason? Jackie, come on. Am I the only person? Who, honeymooners, come on. Right? The what? The great one. The great one. Jackie Gleason. Look, it's on Netflix probably. Look it up. The Honeymooners is great. It's great. Yeah, it's a word we overuse. We overuse a lot. And uh, there are some things in life, though, that are, that are truly great. Uh, David says in Psalm 145, the greatness of God is unsearchable, is unsearchable. In other words, there's no way to fully plumb the depths of the greatness of God. The smartest minds that have ever lived could not fully describe or adequately explain God's perfections. Think of the Grand Canyon. How many people have been to the Grand Canyon? Grand Canyon? You know, before you went to the Grand Canyon, probably everybody says, oh, it's amazing. You, you, it's just awesome. And when you actually get there and, and you look at the Grand Canyon with your own eyes, you realize there's no way. There's no way to put into words the greatness of the Grand Canyon. You have to see it for yourself. And so that's, that's the essence of what David is saying in this psalm, is that the greatness of God, you have to see it for yourself. And yet he does go on, he does try to describe it for us. Notice that David says he will daily praise God in this life and that God's greatness will be praised forever and ever. First thing I want us to notice today from Psalm 145 is this. The unsearchable greatness of God is the source of our praise. The unsearchable greatness of God is the source of our praise. And that praise is a delightful duty of everything that God has created, including us. Because God is indeed great, he is therefore greatly to be praised. Listen to Matthew Henry on this text. He says this, and I quote, To this good work, he here excites himself, engages himself, and has his heart much enlarged in it. What he does, that he will do, having more and more satisfaction in it. It was his duty. It was his delight. End quote from Matthew Henry. Perhaps we haven't thought of worship in this way as a duty and as a delight, but it really is a good description. I mean, worship is a duty. It is a command. The scriptures are filled with exhortations, with commands for us to worship. I mean, the first that pops into our mind is probably the first commandment given to Moses in Exodus 20. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God's first 
and last words to us are worship me. Everything else flows out of this one command. If we break this command, in turn, we will break all the other commands. And actually, if we keep this command, we will keep all of the other command. When we withhold the praise that God rightfully deserves, we are also cutting ourselves off from the one and only thing in the universe that will truly satisfy our heart's desires. You see, we were created to worship both personally and corporately. Dear friend, hear me. No one can worship for you. Worship is, of course, first and foremost an attitude and an inclination of our heart that, of course, no one can see that but God. But please know that true worship never remains in our heart. And why would we want to hide the greatness of God in our heart? So I I urge you, when the church sings, when we're gathered corporately, when we're singing, and praise God, this church does sing. I mean, it's not a competition of of our singing versus another church's, but if it was, we would win. I was sitting down there. It was a blessing. It was a blessing to be down there this morning. Praise God. Uh, This church does sing. But when the church sings, participate, participate. And I know there are seasons of life where it's not easy, where our hearts are cold towards God, where we're going through a dry or a dark time. But it's in those times that we, we should still continue to praise. We should give God the praise that He deserves. Not as an empty ritual, but with a prayer from our heart saying, God, please warm my heart toward you. And of course, congregational singing is is not just about our own heart. It's the one time during the week when we have a distinct opportunity to sing to each other. You'll notice that our congregational songs are not just about God, though that's true. They're also about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But they're also songs meant to be sung to each other, reminding us that we are a part of a covenant community. This is a a holy place. You know, I've been here for 23 years, and uh, I have never gotten over uh, the, the sacredness of coming together with my church family to worship the Lord. It really is a divine privilege that we have every Lord's Day. Look at verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. It's a duty, but it's also, it's a delightful duty because there's nothing more delightful, more beautiful, more glorious, more lovely, more awesome than God. It's not just right that we worship God. It's also soul-satisfying. You may be familiar with the, the Westminster Catechism, The shorter Westminster Catechism puts it this way, question one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Notice that the Westminster says that's one singular end or purpose of man, not not two, not to glorify God and then to enjoy Him forever, but it's one chief end. Perhaps we could say it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. You see, the Westminster divines seem to understand that the glory of God is not at odds with our desire for joy. John Piper has said it this way. God is most glorified in us 
when we are most satisfied in Him. Or to put it negatively, God is not glorified by joyless obedience. The unsearchable greatness of God is the source of our praise. But notice secondly from this psalm, the unmatched works of God are the content of our conversations or the subject of our conversations. Notice that David assumes those who've tasted of the greatness of God will want to spread that joy to others. Look at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Think about that for a second. David wrote this psalm over 2,500 years ago. And since that time, there's an unbroken chain of God's praise from King David to us this morning. One generation commending the worthiness, the works of God to the next generation. So before texting, before email, before the printing press, God put his character on display in awesome acts. And then he inspired men to write down those mighty acts so that they could be shared for generations. Because God is, after all, a relational God. God existed before time in community with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then, in the beginning of Genesis, we see that He breathed life into man. And then He gave man woman, and He gave them children. He put them in a community to reflect the communal nature of God. Communication is indispensable to relationship. Have you ever thought about the fact that people talk about what they're passionate about? They talk about what's important to them. And you don't have to spend too much conversation with someone until you begin to hear what it is that's important to them. Think about the words that you're responsible for on just a given day. Conversations, phone calls, texts, tweets, emails, posts. What do these words say is important in your life? All these texts, posts, tweets, conversations, thoughts. Do they point to Jesus as all-satisfying in your life? If you're anything like me, you need some work here. There's a real need to take inventory of our words and bring those words under the light of the gospel. If you're like me, far too many of your words are just wasted, silly, or even sharp, harsh, sarcastic. There's far too little in my words at times that declare the glorious splendor of God's majestic works. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against social media. In fact, the fact is that the marketplace of ideas in a large part has gone digital. And I think it would be a mistake for Christians to completely pull away from, from these social media platforms altogether. But it would be a greater tragedy for us to stay in these platforms and to blend in with everyone else. Let's encourage one another while we can to leverage social media for the cause of Christ. Let your light shine on social media. Let the gospel of grace season your conversations online and in person. Perhaps there's a person that comes to mind when you think about that um, seasoning your conversations with the gospel of Christ. Maybe someone pops to mind. For me, 
that person is Kimmy's grandmother that we recently lost. And uh, her name, known to most people, is just Mima. Her legacy, without a doubt, is words of life. Uh, whenever you spent time with Mima, you left feeling like you had been poured into words of grace and words of life. And wherever she went, she was giving people words of grace and words of life. And that's her legacy. And um, I, I, and I know the rest of our family and the rest of our church family, we desire to live up to that. You know, when you think about um, what it's like to be a sage, that's kind of an old-fashioned word, but a sage is someone who is just wise, and they just dispense that wisdom. And boy, that's what I aspire to be. You know, I want to be a sage. I want our church to be a church that raises up sages, uh, that wherever they are, whether it's online or in person or at the restaurant, that they are just spilling out the grace of God and the wisdom of God. Well, how does that happen? Let's look at our text again at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The constant focus of the psalmist is on the greatness of God. He meditates on God's wondrous works. He delights in the character and the grace of God. But notice that the fruit of this Godward meditation is gospel conversation. The fruit of this Godward meditation is gospel conversation. We were not designed to be reservoirs of God's grace, but conduits where the grace of God is flowing through us to others. We weren't designed to be conduits. We weren't designed to be reservoirs, rather, but we were designed to be conduits, God's grace flowing through us to others. Praise is not complete unless it's shared. It's the consummation of praise to share it with someone else. Delighting in God should lead to gospel conversation. The human heart is built this way. We naturally sing the praises of the object of our delight, our favorite book, our favorite movie, recipes, restaurants. Social media is filled with the praises of lesser gods. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a reminder to us that we were made to worship and we were made to share the goodness of God with others. And aren't you thankful that somewhere, someone shared that gospel with you? Isn't it incredible that God, in His infinite power and freedom, has chosen to deliver the powerful good news of the gospel through people? He could have delivered it any number of ways that are more impressive, but He has chosen to commission us to be His ambassadors. Let me ask you today, do you have someone that you're praying for to be saved? Who's your one? Wouldn't it be awesome if each of us began praying for one person in our lives to be saved. Take a look at this video.
Numbers. We live by numbers. We track and count and measure everything. And sometimes we think the only numbers that really matter are the big ones. But it's the single digits that make the difference. The Bible says that heaven rejoices with the number one. Yeah, heaven rejoices each time even one person comes to know Jesus. We pastors dream about big numbers, and we should. But a daily focus on one meaningful interaction for Christ, that's the true difference maker. One friend, one family member, one coworker, one person at a time. We want to see God move in our nation like we have never seen before, but it all starts with one. I've got my one, and now I'm challenging you and your church to join us and to find yours. Because ultimately, the only number that really matters is one. Who's your one? So that's J.D. Greer. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, it's an emphasis that's happening in every Southern Baptist church. Um, just an invitation for each of us to really be thinking about one person in our lives. Uh, sometimes it's overwhelming living in South Florida, thinking about just the, the thousands, tens of thousands of people who live around us who, who are without the Lord. And, and so the encouragement is just think of one person in your life that you could begin praying for and begin having a gospel conversation with. On the back of your sermon notes, you'll see some more information there about the campaign called Who's Your One? And do encourage you to check that out this week. You can go to the website. They have uh, resources there to help you, you know, pray for 30 days for your one. You can actually register there and get some emails every day to encourage you. And uh, so do encourage you to, to be thinking about one person in your life that you could pray for and have that gospel conversation with. Well, what have we seen so far in Psalm 145? We've seen, first of all, that the unsearchable greatness of God is the source of our praise. Secondly, we've seen that the unmatched works of God are the subject or the content of our conversation. And I want us to notice, third, that the unmerited grace of God is the satisfaction of our souls. The unmerited grace of God is the satisfaction of our souls. Let's look at verses 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Here we see David recording God's great mercy and grace towards all of his creation. God's common grace is everywhere. If we'll but look. His grace is not just reserved for a special few people, but it's, it's given to all. That's why it's called common grace. The psalmist reminds us that the presence of suffering does not equate to the absence of grace. The presence of suffering does not equate to the absence of grace. As fallen creatures, we're tempted to see suffering as opposed to God's goodness. If God is good and sovereign, we wonder, why does suffering exist? Well, that's a deep question. But I want to say this morning that approaching that question, we probably begin with our scales of justice upside down. Look at verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. David reminds us that God is not just the source of life, 
but he personally sustains life. He holds the universe together. Colossians puts it this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice how personally God is involved in his creation and holding it together. It's a great reminder for us today. The Bible reorients our self-centered worldview and the world of suffering that is surely all around us. Without the Bible, we're left to see and feel that the cosmos somehow should be revolving around us and our pleasure. And consequently, any suffering that we experience or witness must be bad. But the storyline of the Bible, on the other hand, declares from beginning to end that God is the center of the universe, not us. The Bible reminds us that our very existence is an undeserved gift from God. The air we breathe, every heartbeat, our senses, the ability to observe beauty, to enjoy a meal, to belong to a family, to live in America, all undeserved gifts from God. You see, when our view of God is big, our suffering can be understood to have purpose. When our view of God is big, our suffering can be understood to have purpose. Now, bear in mind, suffering exists because of sin, and it's common to all. Every sickness that we encounter, every kind of evil, large and small, that we experience traces back to sin, either our own sin or someone else's sin. If our suffering is a result of our own sin, God is speaking to us as a loving father. Repent and believe the gospel. If our suffering is a result of someone else's sin, God is reminding us that sin is devastatingly evil and that Jesus is coming back soon to right every wrong and to wipe away every tear. But I want you to know this morning that God does not waste one moment of discomfort in our lives. He does not waste a single tear. He does not waste a sleepless night. But He has promised to be working in our lives. He is for us. He's working in millions of ways behind the scenes that we cannot see right now. The psalmist would encourage us to evaluate our suffering in the light of the grace of God that's all around us. Look at verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who can call on him to all who call on him in truth. Maybe you've read some of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis did not have an easy life. Shortly after he buried his wife, he wrote the book called The Problem of Pain. And C.S. Lewis says this in his book, The Problem of Pain. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
Paul testified that God's power is mysteriously perfected in our weakness. In some mysterious, miraculous way, we experience the very power of God in our suffering. I want us to increasingly be a church where broken people are welcomed, don't you? Because after all, we're all broken people. One of the most tragic things that can happen to a church over the course of time is for us to pretend when we gather together that we're not broken and that we have our act together. We're denying the very grace of God that's available to us when we do that. So let's commit to be a church where broken people are welcomed, where we don't have to wear masks and hide our brokenness, but where we can have uh, openness and authenticity and share our brokenness in the light of the gospel and have the gospel do its work in our lives. So whatever brokenness you are struggling in today, I want you to hear this. God has not abandoned you. God loves you. God is for you. God is calling you to trust him even when you can't see him. We have the difficult calling of 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is sealed by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Daniel Ritchie was born with no arms. He said this, and I quote, Our willingness to suffer joyfully for the glory of God carries a testimony that none of us could ever express. We point to a glorious God who offers treasure that neither moth nor rust can destroy. I want to give us some application this morning in a couple of P's. And the first P from Psalm 145 is this in our application. Simply the word praise. There are a number of Hebrew and Greek words in the Bible rendered praise. In each Old Testament and New Testament, praise is a response to God's revelation of himself, an acknowledgement of his character and of his acts. But it's more. Praise is our expression of delight in God himself, our expression of the love we feel as we consider the unsearchable greatness of God. So, if praise is our response to God's revelation, let's first resolve to seek that revelation in the Bible daily and in our corporate gatherings weekly. And then let's resolve to respond in praise personally each time we read the Bible and weekly during our gathered worship. Theology should always lead to doxology. The study of God should always lead to the worship of God. So our first application is praise. Second application is pain. Evaluate every area of brokenness in your life in light of the treasure of Christ and the grace that Jesus purchased with his own suffering and death on your behalf. 
And also see your pain, see your brokenness as a bridge to gospel conversation, which leads us to our third application, people. People. Ask the Lord to give you one person in your life that you could share the gospel with, that you could have a gospel conversation with, and that you could share your brokenness with them as a bridge to the gospel. So praise pain, and people. And finally, if, if you're here this morning and maybe you're new to church, you're new, you're new to this, uh, I do want to share with you a couple of, of other things that begin with P. And it's an outline of what we call the gospel, which is the good news. And the first one is this, the problem of sin. The Bible tells us that sin separates us from God. And again, it's common to every person who's ever been born. We're born into sin, and that sin separates us from God. The problem of sin, and secondly, the person of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect, sinless Son of God. He knew no sin, and He came to the earth to become sin for us when He died on the cross in our place and when He rose again on the third day. Thirdly, the provision of forgiveness. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first of all, the problem of sin, we're separated from God. Secondly, the person of Jesus Christ. He came, lived, died, and rose again for you. And third, the provision of forgiveness, that no matter what you've done, there is no sin too big that God cannot forgive you. And finally, the promise of salvation. Romans says this, the book of Romans, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. There's a great promise of salvation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gospel. I pray, Lord, that it would have its work in every heart and life, not just those who are far off from you, for none of us outgrow the gospel. So Lord, help us all to respond to you and to your greatness as unsearchable. Help us in our conversations to be seasoned with grace, to aspire to be people of wisdom. And Lord, help us evaluate our pain, our brokenness, in light of the treasure of Jesus Christ and his own suffering for us. And Lord, thank you for giving us the good news of the gospel. May it be on our lips this week. Help us to find that one in our lives, that one that your word says, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. And then Lord, give us opportunities and faith to seize those opportunities. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.